What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 117 of Misfits and Rejects. Before I introduce the guest, I just want to say a big shout out and thank you to everyone who bought a Misfit and Reject t-shirt last week. Huge, awesome thank you to you guys. I really appreciate it. If you haven't gotten one yet, it would mean the world to me. If you went and purchased one, you can go get one at misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop. Just go to my website get a shirt. They're super comfortable. You can get men's tees, women's tanks. You can get a logo across the chest or just a logo across your left breast. They just say misfits and rejects. And you have the little emblems on all sides of that. Again, they're really comfortable and it would mean the world to me if you got one. So they're only $19.99. They're super affordable plus shipping. And it would mean the world to me if you went and got one. And thank you again to everyone who purchased one last week. I really appreciate it. And I love getting all those photos of you guys repping. It's, it means the world to me. Thank you. So in today's episode, I sat down with George Baltakian. George is Armenian by blood. He's an Armenian-American, grew up in a very tight-knit Armenian community. He's now a digital nomad. This episode is really cool and special because he talks about the influence the community had on his decision-making, his family's decision-making, the, just the community's effect on everyone within the community and how it can be, and it was, very difficult to break out. And he gives some really cool pointers to anybody out there who's listening who feels like they don't want to let their family down, they don't want to let their community down. He gives some little tricks to help put everyone's mind at ease when you tell them that you're going to go after your dream, whatever it may be. George's was to be a musician originally. And when he took that to his parents, he was clever enough and knew that that wasn't going to fly. So what he did instead was took the idea to them saying that he was going to really develop the business side of becoming a musician. So he went to university for learning how to become a producer of music. And then obviously secretly knowing that he was always going to really pursue his dreams in music. And then after he got a taste for that lifestyle, realizing that it wasn't all it cracked up to be, he decided he really wanted to pursue a life as a digital nomad and then starting to make that happen. And again, using the same tips and tricks that he used the first time around and really helping his family understand that being location independent is a lifestyle that you can be around the world making very good money no matter where you are. And no matter what you're doing, the internet is a way in which anybody can put an idea into motion and within a short period of time find out if that idea is validated by an audience that might then pay you in some way, shape, or form for a product or service. So George is a location-independent digital nomad traveling the world, able to work anywhere he wants in the world. He works for companies helping them with digital marketing, e-commerce, systemizing things and just helping their supply chain throughout whatever they're trying to accomplish. If it's a physical product, he's, he knows a lot about supplements and he's delved into a lot of different aspects of the online world and marketing and stuff like that. So you can check him out at georgebaltakian.com. He's a really good dude, very articulate. And again, he gives us some really beautiful insights into anybody out there who's struggling, really trying to go after their dreams and not having the kind of support they hope to get from their family and friends, well, he gives some great tips and tricks to help ease their minds, give them at least the perception and hope that you are diving into an area in which you're going to make tons of money. And that helps then you get out there and start really pursuing and putting your focus into the things that you need to do to get you into the life situation that you want. So again, thank you for everyone who has purchased a t-shirt. Please go grab one if you haven't got one. It'll mean the world to me. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with George Baltakian. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit 
in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I'm joined by George Baltakian, a good friend of mine that was in this Get Shit Done retreat I did here in Chiang Mai. As you've heard from the past few episodes, I've made a lot of good friends who are living the dream, as people say, or living that location-independent lifestyle, which is why I'm bringing them on, just kind of share their stories with you and hopefully inspire you to maybe think about this being a viable option. So, George, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. What's up, everybody? This is a cool little setting. We are sitting in a gazebo. It's kind of romantic. And uh, it's out in the little jungle setting of this place we stayed at called Green Hill. And it's going to be a little noisy, but that's all right. It's beautiful out here. It's really green, nice, beautiful day. It's good to be outside rather than indoors. Man, I tell you what, like that's one thing that the last few days I've really had to really get myself out instead of just staying stuck in my room working all day. Do you ever find that to be a problem? Yeah, cabin fever. Cabin fever is a big problem like how many hours do you work in a day uh uh so i do afternoon work morning work evening work so i take breaks so it doesn't feel like one continuous stretch but i'd say probably eight to nine depending on the day sometimes seven sometimes six very disciplined of you what are you doing then for hobbies to keep yourself like sane uh so a lot of martial arts since i've been uh back out here so i alternate between yoga and martial arts as like the main body movement physical hobbies because if I don't move my body around, or at least make progress with my physical goals, I'll kind of lose my mind a little bit. Uh, and then a lot of socializing. It's like an important component of a happy life, I think. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point that I've see- seen and heard a lot of people bring up within our community, is that need to like have that routine of exercise, healthy living, and just staying, helping them stay focused, because we are holding ourselves accountable to be successful within this industry, so which isn't even an industry. It's like, it's our own sort of self-created lifestyle. Yeah. And the other aspect, absolutely what you're saying, but the other aspect is like, we spend so much time on computers. So it's like, we spent time hunched over in weird, awkward positions that our bodies aren't naturally meant to be in. And you do a lot of surfing, right? So that's perfect because you're moving your body in all kinds of new ways. And I got really into Ido Portal, if, if you know him. He's like this movement coach expert, does a lot of traveling movement philosophy, but he does capoeira and weird like interpretive dance type of movements. And it's just, he has this whole philosophy of using your body in new ways because you can. And the fact that you're not using it means you lose it. And movement creates new neural connections and helps learning and cognitive function and all this stuff. And plus, you know, it rehabs your body after hours spent in awkward positions in front of laptops. So it's like, it's essential. (laughs) Is this guy on YouTube? Yeah, he's on YouTube. He was on a podcast, uh, London Real, if you know London Real. Yeah, it's, it's, they've had Tim Ferriss and a bunch of other cool people. Cool. We'll put that in the show notes for the audience and myself. Um, so you are in consulting. You've been on the road for three years now. What was life like prior to this sort of movement that you made towards this independent location lifestyle? Cool. Um, well, I was, uh, lucky to be exposed to travel, uh, a little younger, running around completely different style of travel, uh, where I came from a family that didn't spend any money on material goods, but spent it all on travel and experiences. So I was pretty lucky to experience, like to be exposed to it at a critical age of like, you know, my um, preteen years, let's say. So that put the initial spark in my mind. And then, you know, later on learning about lifestyle and and financial independence and all this stuff and seeing what's possible in terms of creating a lifestyle where you can incorporate this, like I had to do it. 
But uh, before that was pretty deep in the music industry. Uh, that was kind of the goal. And uh, in fact, that's what I studied in college was music industry studies, playing in bands, giving music lessons, working in uh, a music licensing company and guitar center and all of those. Um, so I was very focused on music, L.A., and then I just had to break away from it. Yeah, born and raised in L.A., um, the music industry thing, the music aspect of your life, what instrument do you play? Like, what's your pat? What are you passionate about with music? Yeah, so uh, actually, if, if I had to choose one instrument, I'm a drummer, percussionist by trade. That's what I was playing in bands as and, and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I'm kind of multi-instrumentalist after, after a while because I was trying to be a producer pretty seriously. So I'd record bands in my garage and, you know, playing in different bands. You get used to just picking up guitars and basses and keyboards and just like, you pick up a little bit of everything. And in music school, they force you to study piano as well. But if I could choose one thing, uh, drums is, is my big passion. Nice, dude. Yeah. Is this a specialized music school that you went to or was it a university that we all know? Yeah, so in, uh, in a community college, I studied jazz pretty seriously. Um, and then I went to Cal State University of Northridge, uh, which if you're from L.A., you would know it. Um, are, are you from? I'm from Southern California, Southern. but I used to play Northridge in soccer. Okay, from awesome. UCLA, we play against you guys. <laughs> so you know them as a competitor. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. So it's a great school for music industry, actually. Uh, I don't regret studying that because um, <laughs> I almost went down the hardcore jazz route, you know, and I, I almost went to San Diego just to do like to be a jazz performance artist and go really deep on that. If you've seen Whiplash, kind of, it's it's a film about a jazz drummer, like kind of like that environment. Um, but I'm glad I went with music industry studies because it made me incorporate more, you know, business classes and business law and a lot of like miscellaneous classes that kind of formed a more, I think, well-rounded skill set. So I think that was an important stepping stone, like transition between music and what I'm doing now, which is more business e-commerce. That's interesting. Why, why San Diego is such a big jazz scene? I mean, is, is it a big know. jazz scene? That's just where I was planning on going. I wanted to leave the nest and uh, that's where I was planning on yeah, going like to school. San Diego, the Mecca of jazz. No, just for me, it was <laughs> okay. at the time, right? I see. I see. I had romanticized it a lot, I think. I think that's cool. Um, you mentioned that you worked at a bingo hall as well at some yeah. point in your life. Yeah, that was a really funny job because uh, it was a bunch of families and old people. They were gambling for hundreds of dollars. It, it's not like just uh, you know retirement home bingo. This was a gambling operation, you know. And uh, it was funny. That's where I initially got really deep into like Latin culture because it was mostly Hispanic people in like the ghettos of Los Angeles. And I was just this guy and I felt like I had like, you know, 40 different grandmas who just, you know, sometimes like would cook and bring me little toys from McDonald's and just like, I don't know, they thought of me as their grandson. So imagine having like a hundred grandmas and then going and half of them are trying to screw you over just a dollar or two when you're selling them flash tickets on the sides of the bingo games. I remember my first day was like a Halloween contest, like a costume contest for a cash prize of like a hundred dollars. So all these, you know, lower income people, you, you better believe they're competing for this cash prize, you know? So one's dressed crazier than the next. You have all these grandmas and like they all have a perverted sense of humor. And I remember my first day I got my butt grabbed by this old lady and she said, come to mama. And then the bosses were laughing at me because it was my first day and I had no idea. It's like <laughs> fresh, you know, uh, wet behind the ears in terms of bingo. But then uh, it kind of helped me build some hardcore skills as well, like you know, dealing with really crazy situations of people yelling and, you know, people fighting over money. And, uh, and actually like, it made me really good at dealing with cash, like money handling. Cause you're just, you have all these people swarming you when a new game comes out and you have to sell it on the floor. Uh, like imagine little scratchers, except you open the ticket and it tells you if you lost or you won five bucks or you got a number or whatever. Um, I don't know how much you want me to elaborate. Right, but let's go deep, dude. Yeah, this it was, is a funny little subculture you kind of. It was it was a upon. crazy microcosm, man. It's like imagine 
all the misfits and rejects and characters in the world just all convening in one place three times a week to play bingo. Like that's what it felt like. It was it was not reality. You know, are are these like grannies and grandpas like fist fighting at points? Like <laughs> people have gotten into fights. I remember drinking tequila with a couple of them after bingo one time, and like you know, people talking mad shit. And, you know, sometimes sometimes there's a lot of tension. Sometimes you know, I remember one of the one of the bingo people was sleeping with one of the managers, and that was like a whole thing. Um, you know, a couple there was like love triangles between some of the bingo people, even elderly people. You know, but I mean, this is a game in which like balls are pulled from random like bins of balls, right? Yeah. Like, this yeah. is no way a competitive sport that you can like claim that you had an <laughs> edge. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But people are man. People make it a sport almost in terms of like you know. Imagine a bunch of Hispanic superstitious people. You've lived in Central America, right? You know they can be very superstitious. So they, you know, one's bringing more little lucky charms than the next and setting it up around their bingo papers. And they have two dabbers, one in each hand. And they're, they're one's playing like, you know, two sheets. The other one's playing like four or five sheets with two dabbers and just, you know, numbers called. They look like, like a robot just going crazy with it. And if they really, they get competitive with it. I don't know. And sometimes, you know, it, they, they move too fast and they miss their bingo or something, you know? So... Yeah, because you have to call it out. Like you got to call it out on time. Somebody might call it before you. Uh, you know, only one some, Sometimes somebody got a bingo, but they already closed the game. You know, because they're still messing with their six sheets of bingo bingo numbers or whatever. Um, Interesting. How I, long did you do this for? I did this for about a year and a half. It paid cash under the table, so so it was like a really nice uh, income. Like while I was in college, in community college initially. Yeah. Yeah. That is so interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, transitioning from college, like a lot of us do, we're like, oh, what are we going to do with our lives? And you're obviously on track to do the music thing. Did you get a disillusion with that? Like, why didn't you stick with that? The music stuff? Yeah, the music stuff. Um, man, so, so I was at a point where I was actually making my income from music. So that meant playing in bands and giving lessons and doing all that kind of stuff and sometimes getting paid to record bands um, or doing random one-off gigs. And the thing is, I started um, conflating my passion, which was music, performance. Like, you know, when I played with my band, which was like this jazz, my main band at the time was this jazz fusion ensemble. It was called Snake Charmer Ensemble. It was some of the best times I've had in my life in terms of performing and exploring jazz and music and just getting crazy with it. Because, you know, we just improvised and, and went places with it like we like musical adventures. And uh, and it, it was weird turning that, which was my passion, which was playing uh, into something I did to make money and played simple things or played music I didn't necessarily enjoy. Uh, so I was kind of like, it, it was weird. It occupied the space in my mind where it was on one hand my passion, on one hand something I'm doing that feels like drudgery. Lugging my drums around, you know, it's not like a guitar you could just pick up. It's like, you know, it's it's also manual labor attached to it. So you, be, you, you know, damn sure better love what you're playing and it better be worth it for you beyond just the money. Especially if you're doing, you know, one-off gigs that aren't necessarily paying a whole lot. That would have been a different story if they were really lucrative, but it was just like, you know, like hustling, making money, but I don't even enjoy the music I'm playing. It wasn't worth it anymore. So I just said, let me keep this pure. Let me figure out the income and then I'll have, the, you know, my private island with my amazing musical equipment on it. And then I'll go really deep and I'll have the money to take lessons with the great jazz players or the great whatever players that, you know, um, I feel like income can afford a lot of opportunity and I can accelerate my learning when, when I'm batch processing it. And I'll go really deep on it at some point in my life. I know I will, like I have in the past. But first, got to figure out uh, a lot of the income stuff. That's interesting because yeah. I have the same, I think, perspective on like how I'm trying to design my life. Like, money's important to me right now because I want to like 
do certain things that I know I need to sit down and do in a certain way rather than just throwing myself into the deep end with it. Cause I've learned over time, like my learning styles are such that like the deep end stuff doesn't work for me. Like I need to approach, calculate, and then commit to then the process that I know is going to take me a few years. Like languages, for example, I'm not gifted. I've spent tons of years in Latin America. My Spanish is still subpar for the amount of time I've spent there, but it's because I just wasn't in the headspace to really sit down and learn it. And so with you striving for that kind of financial future, like what's the game plan? I mean, what was, what do you have vision wise to like get you, yourself, yourself set up to like have those masters sit with you and, and play with you? Yeah, mate. Um, Ah, oh, man. First of all, like, I, I think optimizing by environment is important. Like certain places I feel more productive and certain places are more optimized for the creative endeavors and whatever, and really going hard on one thing at a time and going deep. I think that's so important. And, uh, you know, in regards to the not being talented with language stuff, I think hard work beats talent every time. Like the, the mindset you have, I think is so perfect. Um, but in terms of the finances, for me, it's going to be, uh, on one hand, the e-commerce consulting, uh, which is, you know, uh, things that resemble jobs, which is uh, one of my main gigs right now. Uh, I've been with this company for two years doing some things cooking on the side, but, uh, mainly this quote unquote job and it's, you know, consulting client for, uh, like on one hand for tax purposes. Right. But, um, but I have the freedom to do it. I will continue that just to afford the runway while I'm building my own e-commerce businesses. So that's, that's the game plan for me. Cause it's what I know. And it's what I cut my teeth in is, uh, you know, physical products, e-commerce. And then from there, uh, I'm open to getting into different things just for the sake of learning, if not for the income. Right. So it's like, it's not my wheelhouse to do info products. It's not my wheelhouse to do software, but I'm open to all of it because I just come up from an approach of just learning. Yeah. Right. These physical products, what are they specifically? Or do you just any type of physical product? So this current company I'm working with, uh, I've done a lot of supplements. So, and my, <laughs> my job has kind of transitioned to do more of the manufacturing side, the logistics side, the supply chain side. So initially I started off with the marketing and like, you know, building drop shipping brands and doing this and that. Uh, and, and then I went, I transitioned to the whole Amazon FBA game, which is fulfillment by Amazon and doing the whole marketing and managing a team. That's why I learned to manage. And now I'm doing all the logistics supply chain. So, uh, kind of all the puzzle pieces, you know, the map is kind of becoming more and more clear with all these different roles I'm playing. And I, I think I'm in a position to slingshot and do my own thing, but, uh, yeah, supplements. So there's a lot of detail that goes into that. Uh, a lot of testing that needs to be done at various stages of the process, et cetera. Uh, it's been, it's been a huge learning experience for me. So for the listeners out there who just heard what you said and had no idea what you just said, can you take <laughs> us through like a very clear cut, short sort of answer to what that all meant, where it's like you make your money because you do specifically like what for a company when they say, okay. George, I need you to execute on this and you'll get money in your account at the end of every two weeks or a month because you did this. My specific actions that I do as part of my job include managing spreadsheets, creating calculators in Google Sheets to, to forecast certain things or forecast inventory, uh, to see what the monthly sales for a given product are and how many months of inventory we have based on that, uh, which indicates when we need to reorder and creating simple matrices for things like this, as well as just email interface back and forth with the supplier, sometimes including calls with customer service or calls with the account managers, uh, just to keep the daily operations and the product development cycle just chugging along. So it's a lot of calls, a lot of admin, 
administrative work and sometimes delegation to some of the VAs and employees that we have. Okay. So VA meaning virtual assistant. Now with your background in music, like this is a huge leap. I mean, you did mention that you had experience because the music industry taught you a little bit about business or a lot about business. It sounds like, um, what, like how, how have you learned all these processes and steps like to get to where you're at right now? So it's interesting because I did some admin work and in, in, in internships and whatever. And I did some sales in the music industry too. And, and also I was kind of like the manager of all the bands that I was a part of just, you know, having to take the lead, having to manage, having to cut the deal, having to, you know, come up with some sort of, you know, napkin contract. Um, so all those things I never realized, but they, they became useful in this as well. And also understanding licensing, right? Because that's a huge element of the music industry is like actual copyright licensing, et cetera. And all those concepts exist in every every aspect of business, but we don't think about it, right? As far as trademarks for a brand name, or as far as you know, trademarks on on certain uh, claims people make for you know a certain ingredient. So, for example, you know, people will take a specific ingredient in a supplement and trademark that ingredient or that combination of ingredients, or a marketing claim that can be made for that ingredient, where you can use that ingredient but not that marketing claim because they have the pat- patent on it or whatever. So I didn't realize, but all, all the business law classes, all the copyright classes for music, they all became useful. Everything you're learning eventually comes to fruition. And plus, being in the music industry or you know any industry, depending how you approach it, like networking is a huge factor. It's so important. Um, and that, that ended up being a really important one for me. On one hand, because I had, you know, I have to deal with a lot of people in the industry, uh, make a lot of calls, you know, talk to suppliers, be able to negotiate, etc. On the other hand, because I only got these opportunities, they only came my way uh, because of my network and, you know, just getting out there, being willing to meet people, taking a leap of faith, uh, you know, afforded me the opportunities I have now. I'm only working for these guys and like, you know, doing great work with them and learning so much from them and being mentored by some people in the dynamite circle. Uh, because because I'm willing to like get out there and meet people, and that that came from being in the music business too. Yeah, it's cool. I want to go a little bit more deeper into networking, the dynamite circle, because right. I've just joined. Everyone who's in it talks about it being a game changer for them in their business. Like, how have you found it to be for yourself and utilized it to help you get to where you're at? So, FYI, I'm a volunteer in the DC. I'm not an official member because I don't uh, meet the uh, you know passive in- the income standard that they have. They have like a little barrier to entry okay. with with a certain uh, revenue figure. Okay. Um, it's not unattainable. Uh, I see myself doing it this year, likely okay. this year or next year. Um, but, uh, I am a volunteer. So I volunteer at a lot of the events, just go to the Juntos that they have. And Juntos are kind of like random meetups. They hold in random cities where a lot of DC is kind of just hang out, uh, which are extremely informal. You know, you don't need a ticket. You just go to a bar, have a drink with these guys and just rub elbows and, and learn so much, especially if you're just getting started in this path. But as far as the DC, Man, so I'll, I'll tell you the way I, I kind of started like getting introduced to DC series. Uh, basically, when I was when I had decided to take e-commerce seriously and embark upon this travel lifestyle, I just needed one path to follow. I signed up for this course uh, to do e-commerce dropshipping. Uh, Johnny probably talked about this too, but because um, he's a big advocate of that course, dropship lifestyle. So I went to their retreat in probably Thailand. This is three years ago. And that was kind of like, okay, we're going out there. We're going to Thailand, one-way ticket. We're doing this. And then I, I just, you know, made it a goal to just like keep an open mind, learn as much as possible, meet people, whatever. And uh, I saw Jeremy Ginsberg, which is a, a mutual friend of ours. Uh, and uh, 
you know, he made these music videos at the time about digital nomading and they were really funny, like, you know, kind of uh, being parodies of, of actual existing songs and talking about Bulletproof Coffee and Tim Ferriss and this and that very comedic way. So I met him. I was like, dude, aren't you Jeremy Ginsberg? I'm a fan, blah, blah, blah. And then um, funny enough, that's that's how I got introduced to Nate, who was my first uh, real mentor. And he kind of uh, was like the you know catalyst, like really important part of me getting introduced to the Dynamite Circle. I went to Saigon, Vietnam, a few months after that to work for him, and I kind of put all my dropshipping stuff on hold because it just seemed like a really good opportunity. Like trusting my instincts, it just seemed like the really right direction to take. So uh, that's another big lesson: was killing my dropshipping stores. One of the hardest things I had done at that time because you're killing your babies, right? And that's really difficult to do. But as far as mental fortitude, it was you know it was a necessary step for me. Um, but I worked for Nate and that was life changing for me. And I met all the DCRs. I kind of got plugged in because he already had that network. So I met all his friends. And then from there, it kind of carried over and, and multiplied, uh, just being involved, hanging out in Saigon, hanging out in Chiang Mai or wherever I am, just searching for the Dynamite Circle crew and just meeting people. Also Nomad List as well. But the Dynamite Circle specifically, it's just, it was a game changer for me because I think my, my vision of what being a, a location independent dude, like could be, I think that was limited because these guys are doing it at a higher level because they're, they're also business focused as much as the lifestyle, if not more, right? It's like so many people in this community, they're just focused on the lifestyle, the coconuts, the beaches, laptop on the beach, this, that, however, it's marketed to them and they feed into that, but they don't realize you can really scale it up and create an amazing life, you know, and, and, you know, economic, uh, like well being can afford that. And, and it can help you really do something amazing with your life versus just make enough to get by or just make enough to travel. And that's all cool. And, and that's a worthy pursuit too. But I just really admire some of these like, you know, big ballers in, in the dynamite circle. It's, it really fuels my ambition to just, you know, ride at their coattails or just like, you know, observe them and just learn from them. I mean, I feel you 100%. That's was the biggest sort of eye opener to me as well. Like, I mean, I came seeking these types of people. I needed to see the real thing, the people making the real, real money, as I call it, you know, like the six figures and above. And yeah, now I'm meeting people who are making eight figures mm -hmm. and they're like cruising around the world. I mean, they're serious business people though. So it's not like they're jumping on a bus that's going to take them 30 hours to like Hanoi or something like that. Like they're going to fly and they're going to be there at a, a reasonable time to jump back on their computer, work an eight, 10 hour day or whatever they do, enjoy the nightlife, do whatever they do, maybe take a few days off. But like these people, run giant businesses all mobilely digitally and they're crushing it. Yeah. It's crazy. Absolutely. It's so inspirational and I love it. Totally. <laughs> yeah. I love that they're doing it big, you know, and, and think about that. They save a day of their life, not riding a 30 hour bus. You know, they save a day of their life because they can with relative ease, you know, they they're at a place where they can afford that quick flight. You know, yeah. you know what I'm saying? And, and they could take care of their friends and family. They can be abundant with their resources. You know, everyone could, you know, it's, it's, it's a great goal to just be able to take care of your own financial well-being. But whenever you can go outward, have higher levels of motivation to like, you know, serve as well. And, and kind of, you know, a lot of them are really into philanthropy. A lot of them are really into you know, investing in a bunch of different companies, helping their friends start companies, helping their family, taking their family on trips and stuff. I'm not in a position to do that just yet. But I plan to. I, I would like to. That's a great thing to strive for. To be in that position, to be able to do that and have this lifestyle, I mean, that sounds ideal. I feel you. And just to go back to that one point I just made with like 30-hour bus ride, I think is tremendously important and worth doing. And I think everyone benefits from it. And I plan on doing it forever. <laughs> but I 
would like to achieve a financial level where I can choose to take that flight if I want to. But the 30 hour bus ride train ride for me is like so valuable because all those little weird things that happen along those 30 hours yeah. on a bus are just so enriching. I like that. So, so yeah. can you tell me, do you have any crazy experiences on these 30 hour bus rides? Yeah. Well, I was on a, um, like a 30 hour train ride in India once and it wasn't luckily at the end of the 30 hours where we realized this, but we were probably like five to seven hours into it. And we realized we we're on the wrong train going the wrong way. And somebody was nice enough to be, we we're sitting there at a stop and we had been stopped in a random weird spot for quite a while. And we kind of realized we we're on the wrong train. And then somebody pointed out there was another train stopped right next to us. This is in the middle of nowhere on a track that happened to have these two passing abilities for trains. They're like, that's your train. Get on that one. So we hopped off, jumped on another train. Now we go seven hours back in one direction to add on another leg. It was so weird. But just, again, that experience with people helping and just seeing the culture of these trains and how these whole things function. It's just so beautiful. I love these crazy travel stories. Like, I love I love the fuck-ups. I love, I love all of it because it makes you get out there and, and self-correct, correct course. And, like, there's kind of a, gro a personal growth that comes from that, right? The, the uncertainty you're dealing with, the uncomfortable situations you're dealing with, and it all just kind of fuels you and makes you stronger, you know? It's exhausting and you need breaks from it, but it just it creates such a strong mind and this, like, unshakable core, you know, yeah. because you've just dealt with so much crazy bullshit that, that you're just, like, you know, nothing could phase you anymore, I feel. That's amazing. Yeah. I want to touch upon the supplement thing real quick because you sure. said you're moving into, um, what, recipe oversight or something like that? So I do product development and, and kind of like also the formulations, but I'm, I'm transitioning to do my own thing soon. So basically I'm, well, you know, taking, walking away from this client and kind of embarking upon my own business. Like I'm trying to Within limit all the other things I'm doing and just go hard on one thing. I haven't decided yet, actually, okay. but I, my plan is to split test a bunch of ideas I have. Uh, so in this idea, in this phase, I'm just kind of in, uh, like product research, I, you know, idea validation, um, basically gonna planning to run some ads on, on a few ideas I have and seeing which one gains the most traction and just letting the market, you know, decide, um, help me decide. Basically. Right. So for the audience, just to understand what that means, like when you split test something, you take five ideas and I'm assuming you're going to create maybe a Facebook ad with a certain pitch for each idea and whatever gets the most responses, you'll say, okay, that's, a, that's an idea that the market might want. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So like the lean startup is a great book that talks about this on like the whole business level, but just taking the approach of, you know, small batches, putting them out there and then pivoting and ver making variations along the way. Uh, that might be once I have a, a product, but doing that for each ad, for example, right? So running an ad on a product, changing one thing, but keeping everything else the same and seeing which one actually gets a better response, right? That could be more clicks. That could be more people reading your articles, whatever. So I'd send them over to, to a few different product pages that are very much all about this one product, right? That you put up there and you make a sales page for and whatever, and you see which one is working the best. And sometimes it might be, for example, if it is a supplement, you could do the same exact formula, and, and then just brand it differently, you know, or you could do the same exact formula and brand, except change one ingredient, you know, switch, swap it out for a different ingredient and see what has a better response, right? Based on the copy and that ingredient. So there are so many ways to do it that it can make your head spin. It can really make you crazy, but I just want to do kind of minimal effective dose to kind of get started and start getting tra traction. Uh, I have a few potential partnerships cooking as well for some like fitness products that, you know, might source from China uh, or elsewhere. Um, but yeah, uh, this is kind of, you know, part of what I currently do. What does uh, your family think about all this? Uh, you know, they uh, can't help, but want 
to uh, keep me safe and and keep me within you know arm's length uh, just because they love me and care about me and are are worried about me and they can't help it right um, I'm lucky to be very close with both my parents um, and that's because of a lot of other circumstances that we've gone through together but I'm very lucky to have the relationship I have with them so I try to keep in touch I could be doing a better job at that but in terms of how they feel about my my lifestyle they're I mean at this point, I'd say they're like proud of me and kind of like super encouraging. And they're like, yeah, cool. Come back anytime you want. And you're always part of the family and you always have a place here in LA. Uh, but we understand like this is, this is your life. This is your one life. This is your passion. You love living this way. And we, we encourage it, even though we miss you a lot. Um, so yeah, they're, they're cool about it. But in the beginning, there was a lot more uncertainty. So it was kind of like they had a little more trouble dealing with it. But yeah, you just got to, kind of make them feel more comfortable with it, make them certain about it. And, and yeah. And I think that's a big obstacle for a lot of people who want to, you know, take that first step out into the world. I mean, their family is the one that's holding them back the most Yeah, just because of that fear or whatever it may be. Um, it sounds like they were more open to the possibilities, but you did imply that you had to kind of like help put them at ease a bit. Yeah. It was more than just my parents, actually. If I want to extend that, uh, out, like, the bigger picture was social pressure from a really tight-knit, closed-minded community. So a little bit uh, kind of earlier in my background Please. would help you, would help kind of like paint this picture. Uh, I went to a private Armenian school for most of my life. Um, Is that your background, Armenian? I'm Armenian, yeah. Any any last names with I-A-N? Typically, they're Armenian. Um, and yeah, I went to like a private Armenian school because Armenians are, you know, we've had a lot of sh- like a lot of crazy experiences in our history in terms of wars and all that and genocide. So, so we like to keep our culture and like, you know, it basically creates an echo chamber because we're so, um, close minded. And I feel like a a lot of small groups have this because you want to retain your culture. You try to grasp onto it and you want to like, you know, you know, repopulate your, your, you know, uh, your people. Um, and you try to like, you know, go to Armenian events and do Armenian things, but there's this kind of echo chamber that, that creates this, I don't know, bubble. Uh, You kind of all in a bubble. Right a bubble of ignorance, I would say, and uh, like not interacting with people outside of it basically limits the amount of new ideas you can interact with. So I think it innately creates ignorance. And I had to break out of that. And especially when I was in community college, I always thought differently, though. I was always a misfit and a reject. But and I have my sister to thank for that. And some of the music I was inspired by growing up just being like, fuck everyone. What was it? Tell us what was it. So I listened to a lot of Tool, Rage Against the Machine, um, like system of a down, like all that kind of stuff. Um, and some punk rock too, and some metal too. Um, and then I got into jazz <laughs> randomly, but, uh, sorry, without being too long winded on this, I'll say like, uh, coming from that closed minded community, basically where everyone is constantly watching and judging each other for every little thing that to most people doesn't mean anything, but like f- for some reason in this microcosm, it's just this like extreme point of contention and, and everyone's constantly judging it. It just makes you, gives you a deep rooted, like fear of social judgment because there is very much like negative outcomes you face based on this group think social judgment, whatever. So maybe this is something I, I will pursue therapy for in the future or whatever. But like, you know, the self therapy has been to constantly keep breaking through it, you know, constantly keep putting it out in spite of like my fears that come up that are completely irrational. You know, I read this great article recently and maybe we can link to this too. I think it's worth it is wait, but why? If you know that blog. So wait, but why is Tim Urban? And he has a bunch of like funny comedic drawings with like each one of his like posts that help illustrate the point. They're like hilarious, but also he's a great writer and he, he, he always asks, wait, but why? 
wait, but why? Wait, but why? Constantly getting to like the root cause of everything. Um, and he has one about, um, he compares the, the overthinking mind that fear of social criticism and judgment, whatever, as this mammoth, because it's like a prehistoric part when we lived in tribes, right? And it's like this tribal mentality, like if enough people turn against you or don't like you or judge you, you're going to get kicked out of the tribes and it could mean you're going to die. So if you, if you relate that to nowadays, we no longer have that tribalism problem where we're living in tribes. Like the social judgment means nothing, really. It's, it's not real. You know, it, it doesn't have a real outcome. Um, and it's not threatening our survival, but we have this physical, physiological response as if, uh, as though it was, you know? Um, so just trying to mitigate that has been like a really, uh, interesting challenge. I would say, uh, I'm, I'm perhaps hyper-conscious of it. Um, but yeah, just breaking through that all the time, whenever I can, uh, that's been important for me and my personal growth. I want to go deeper on this. This is a really cool subject, especially because, you know, the Armenian thing, I think a lot of people listening have the same cultural sort of fears and pressures that are holding them back. So we can dive a little deeper on that when this goes over. Like, I think that could be, you know, a pivotal point for a lot of people to hear, you know? But yeah, I'd love to elaborate more on what you just said, because I think the the cultural aspect of like with the Armenian, for, for example, or if you're Jewish or if you're, you know, a lot of these cultures who are very keeping or keeping everybody insulated and like, this is who we are. This is who we need to stay in order to be a successful race of people limits a lot of the individuality within that kind of circle. So, I mean, what kind of stuff can people do to maybe push but not push so far where they get excommunicated from their mm-hmm. family. Cause I, I know I hear what you're saying. Like there aren't real consequences, but there are like, I mean, there are parents who say like, if you don't do this, like if you don't follow my rules or if you don't go to college, like you're out, you're done yeah. and I won't talk to you anymore. And you're not my son or you're not my daughter. Yeah. And that's real. And that's something that I think a lot of people face and like would love to hear more insight into like how they could maybe find a balance and help, you know, have their parents understand where they're coming from to maybe get themselves into a happier life situation. You yeah. know, like, what do you think about that? So I think finding a balance is possible in most situations, but in some situations it's simply not because it's a tug of war. It's a battle between you fitting into the mold that they want you to versus you being your authentic self and doing in this short life, what really speaks to you, living your life your own way. I heard this great quote. It says, there's only one type of success. There's only one meaning for success. It's just living your life your way, your own way, whatever that means to you, right? And so basically you're lying to yourself about who you are and how you want to live your life. You're going against your authentic voice that's inside. Talks about this in the article as well. The authentic voice inside uh, that deep down knows what's right for you and everything and wants to express itself fully in this life. All you have is your life narrative. So you got to live it your way. And, you know, uh, it's grim to think about, but one day your parents will die and you'll be stuck in that life that you've created for yourself. Right. And you're going to spend the rest of your life regretting it because uh, I mean, you might, you might not, uh, you know, I'm nobody's judge of how they should live their life. I feel like I can only comment on my own life. Right. But this is, this philosophy has served me very well. It's like, it's like you have one shot. <laughs> you're going to die one day. Uh, everyone, you know, is also going to die one day. And none of this really in the long term it's arguable whether any of this matters or not. So all you can do is live your life how you want to just make it an interesting journey for yourself and live it in a way that like brings you the most passion and joy and success. So in terms of, so that's, that's the general primer I try to approach this with, but in terms of finding a balance, basically for me, finding a balance, uh, 
if we could draw lessons from it was, okay, first going down the whole, I'm going to be a jazz musician and this and that. And my parents being like, oh, fuck, our son's going to be broke his whole life. And, you know, we're going to go to dinner parties and like, what does your son do? What does your daughter do? Oh, he's a doctor. He's a lawyer. He's a jazz musician. Fuck. <laughs> you know, so I went through that phase for sure. And then the balance for me was doing the music business stuff, right? Which is like practical to satisfy the family. And at the same time, it's like music. So it satisfies my like passionate side or what my creative side. So that was so I I think there's always going to be a balance, right? Like you could be into the weirdest thing ever. And there's also going to be people who are into that and, and you can create a business around it or a community around it or some kind of parallel, maybe not a hundred percent what you're passionate about, but some kind of parallel balance of it. And as long as it, ha it makes practical sense, right? As long as you're making money from it and not just to survive, but if you can silence all the voices and prove all of them wrong, even though you hurt your relationship with your family for a few years, when you make a million dollars from it, they're definitely going to say, okay, this makes sense to me. We respect you now. I think respect is so much more important. Even if you're defying them for a short period of time, I think respect, like earning their respect in a way, so much more important for the relationship, right? Because if, if my father really wanted me to be an engineer, my father, my father really wanted me to be an engineer. I mean, he didn't push too much, but that's what he deep down really wanted and didn't have a problem conveying to me. Um, and that's not the case, but you know, if I make money doing what I'm doing and I'm passionate and I'm creating a successful life, he's going to be proud and happy and satisfied and encouraging and whatever. And I had to prove it to them in a way, right? Like they didn't put me under some kind of, you know, like, you know, trial, but, but in, in my own way, I felt like, uh, you know, it wasn't really a proven concept that I could go out and do this thing. But now I feel like it's extremely sustainable. I feel like I have unlimited opportunities. You know, if I don't make the business thing work, I could just get another remote job, you know, uh, and like still keep getting higher paying jobs and, and like still keep growing in that way, like developing my career in that way. There's just so much opportunity and you could find something that has parallels with what you're interested in, what you're passionate about that can also satisfy them. But you got to think laterally, perhaps think outside the box, perhaps go through a period where your relationship suffers a little bit for the greater good that you're going to be in the life that you're satisfied with and they're satisfied and at the end of the day, they really love you. So you might have to call their bluff. That's a great answer, dude. Thank you for that. That's really well articulated. And Johnny FD actually brings that up in um, the episode where, you know, he didn't, he knows his family loves him, but he didn't feel like they were really on board with this whole, like live abroad and be a dive instructor and do a digital nomad thing until he made, you know, whatever, 300 and something thousand dollars. And they're like, Oh, I always knew you could do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, bullshit. So but, true. but at the same time, like, thanks for the love and support, you know, yeah. to whatever extent you were able to give it to me. Yeah. And I love that, you know, finding a way to articulate it to the, the naysayers that you're like, I want to be a musician. And they're like, no, dude, you're going to be broke. And you're like, no, I'm going to go into the business side of music. And they're like, yeah, I think you could do that. You know, it's like, that's a great way to balance it. And yeah. I think for a lot of people listening, like, think about it like that, you know, try to take that one thing you're passionate about. And if, it's very clear that everyone believes you're going to be broke doing it. Well, then try to find the business side of that and just label it a little differently when you're, you know, at the dinner table one night proposing to everybody what you're about to attempt. You know, totally, yeah. Put it in a language they can understand. You know, yeah, yeah. What is your, uh, what does your family do? Like how they, how they raise you guys in, in the sense of like, where were they going to work every day? Cool. Uh, so my mother was corporate for a long time as I was growing up. She worked for one of the most evil corporations, Nestle. <laughs> uh, I'll say that. Hopefully nobody comes after me. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So, so she was a corporate slave for a long time. It was funny, actually. Side note, when I, when I read the four hour work week, I think it's very much like in a voice that addresses corporate slavery. And I was like flipping through the pages, like every page flipping. Mom needs to read this. Wow. Mom needs to read this. Whatever. I gave her this book. She read it on a business trip 
once on the way there, once on the way back. And she like came back and started planning and changing her life. And now she's a professor and works way less, but makes like relatively great income per hour. And like, she's super happy and satisfied with life, way more free time. And it's like, now we're like a Tim Ferriss family. It's kind of interesting. They read stoicism too now. It's, it's great. Um, my father is an engineer. He was always kind of, uh, kind of, a, in a way, like, uh, I don't want to say life hacker, but always seeking efficiency in his life. So observing him was really cool. He's a very type A, very logical person. And my mother's really good with people, which is kind of why I think I love people and, and interaction is so fascinating to me, like human interaction. She's in human resources, right? Um, so yeah, that was really interesting. And I got to temp at Nestle early on. So I knew I hated corporate life. I think you should get a taste of it, you know, early on so oh, that, so that you'll know whether you want to do it or not. And when you have like high school and college, it's like a huge safety net for you to just kind of explore and try all these different things to like, you know, basically validate your hypotheses, like see if they're true or not. Um, but I knew corporate life wasn't for me. I just didn't know what the alternative was. I, I settled on jazz. <laughs> nice, dude. Yeah. You mentioned the, you know, four hour work week, which we hear a lot, you know, within the community. What other types of books have really inspired you and helped you and guided you? towards where you're at today yeah so for my personal growth the first thing that comes to my mind is stoicism for sure um and this came from you know like i think one of the thought leaders for this who like kind of amplified it and put it out there more for like to expose more people to it was probably tim ferris ryan holiday tim ferris all those guys so ryan holiday wrote this book or co-wrote this book called um the daily stoic which is a collection of a bunch of quotes from old stoic philosophers and that essential idea of stoicism, right, is to manage your emotions in a way that serve you best in life, to have like emotional control, to like really fully explore the beauty of life without all the crazy ups and downs, without the instability and to really be like, honestly, I think, I think it's mastering your mind to live your life to the fullest in a way. So for a young, ambitious person who wants to create any kind of life that has to deal with emotional turmoil, I think it's such a great uh, resource. And that's by far the daily stoic to me has been the most digestible resource of that dissemination of that information because it, it it'll give you a quote and then relate it to daily life in the modern world right so uh, this is a, a newspaper article or a journal article that pops up every day or blog so uh, he has a he has a newsletter for it that sends you like a quick thing every day but this is like a, a book that's set up as 365 pages one page per day that's how you're supposed to read it that's not how i read it and each chapter is like a different each month essentially is a different topic of life or the mind or whatever okay um phenomenal for me personally um yeah another one was vagabonding vagabonding for me made it be was was really the you know kind of the creative like fueling the passion behind like travel and everything it's like yes i want to do this like i got really fired up about doing it long term and making it a part of my life versus just some two-week rushed thing uh it, you know like taking a break from work paid leave for two weeks uh that didn't make any sense to me like for travel to really change you i feel like you need to live it it needs to be a, like a more of a part of your life uh, um, it's an unfortunate truth in the States is that most people don't have their passports and people, it's not common in our culture to do gap years. And I think that's because we're very focused on, okay, like go to college, get a job, do this, build a life, whatever. And there's this very, um, you know, like ambitious culture, which on one hand is great, but the other side is like, they don't allow for breaks, you know, uh, six months off on a resume looks terrible. People freak out about it. But I think like, I wouldn't want, want to work for anyone who's freaked out by that. You know, I'd, I would want to work for somebody who's excited that I got to travel for six months to a year, you know, who's like wants to ask me about that and like see how it changed me and, and improved me as a person. You know, I think it's really hard to quantify the benefits of traveling for long term. But like, I think that's so important. 
Um, I might just be ranting, but... No, no, it's good. Um, I met a, a Swiss lady the other night who seemed a little bit down, and we've got on the top topics of like what I'm doing and what she's been doing. And she was, she said, she's like, I haven't had a job in seven years, and I was like, congratulations, like that's amazing. And she was kind of offended by it. I mean, she was implying that she didn't have a corporate job and she'd been looking and just wasn't getting hired, and she really was just lost in life. And I just it was so interesting that she found herself, and she's in Thailand traveling. That's not fulfilled because she's still, I guess, seemingly stuck in that like idea that she, in order to be happy and live the life that her peers perceive as like the good life is to have a corporate job. So interesting. So there's two problems I can point out with that. That you know, again, I'm not the judge for other people's lives, but uh, one is the comparison game. You're always losing if you start comparing yourself because there's always somebody better off and there's always somebody whose standards you don't meet, right? And the other thing is like expectation management so i had a good buddy peter shout out to peter <laughs> who who taught me that um you know anything you feel about any outcome is based on your expectations right and that seems obvious to me now but at the time i was like whoa this is mind-blowing this is so true you know so if you feel good about an outcome or bad about an outcome it's always about expectation management right so it's like she's in thailand other people might look at that and see that her life is friggin' amazing uh, but she doesn't see it that way because she has this expectation of, you know, having a job and like what her life should look like, et cetera. No, you know, like and wherever you are at in your journey, you have to be satisfied with your life. You know, definitely keep it moving forward and, you know, keep rising to greater feats if, you know, if that's your thing. But there's no point of not being happy in any given moment. It's like, you know, that's that's the moment. If you only enjoy it, your time at the summit, you're not going to enjoy the climb. And that doesn't make any sense because that's what you spend most of your time on. Right. Trying to get there. Um so yeah, I think that's what I would say to her. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautifully said. Cheers. And then to like make that a broader question to the audience, like what would you say to the audience or an individual in the audience who's thinking about taking this first step out into the unknown or that first adventure or that first step being like, I'm done. Like I'm going to design my life the way I want. You know, like what would you say to them? First of all, uh, I would say good on you. Like go, go out there and get it and do it and uh, you'll figure it out along the way. And um, you know, like the worst case scenario of failing at it and having to try again is not that bad. You know, um, you, you have time and I think it's totally attainable, you know, like for people on the other side of this, for people living it, it, uh, it's just such a casual thing. And we all realized that before we started living this way, it was just like more of a mental barrier than anything else. Right. And it's like, once you break through it, it's like, there's this camaraderie and common respect of a lot of people here who have all broken through that mental barrier of just like gone out there. And, and done it and pushed through all the social conditioning and pushed through all the social uh, pressure and judgment, etc. And it just makes you so strong just taking that leap of faith. But you got to remember, you can't take a leap of faith and hold on to the ledge at the same time, right? You really need to commit to it. I remember when I found out that this type of lifestyle was possible, I was like all in, I was 100% committed. And maybe that's what you need to do, you know? And there is a balance to it. And it's, it's easier for some people, harder for others. But it's possible for everybody. It's so doable. And I know deep down, like even if I, you know, get fired or don't have work for a while or whatever, there's so much options. Like I, as long as I'm single and don't have a family to worry about just yet, um, like I don't need to go back, uh, you know, and like, I don't know. It's just normal to me now. Um, but I guess I could say to, to somebody who wants to get started, it's totally possible. There's an infinite amount of opportunity once you th see through the matrix, you know. It's like on the other side, it seems so unattainable, but you know, when, when you kind of are exposed to all of this, when you start being around these people, um, 
it just becomes so clear that there's an infinite opportunity and just get around these people and you'll have more access to those opportunities. Just get around the community you want to be a part of and you'll eventually be more like them. It's like the average of the five people. So just take action, I guess. It's, it seems cliche, but just get out there and do it and then figure it out along the way. It's not going to be perfect, but you know, that's what life's all about. Beautifully said, brother. We Cheers. love you and appreciate you. Thanks for having me on. Awesome, George. Thank you so much for coming on, being so articulate and sharing so openly about your experience as you've journeyed through the music industry into the digital nomad world. And now I know that you have aspirations to incarnate into something new, taking your skills that you've learned online into your own business. So all you listeners out there can go check him out at georgebaltakian.com. He's a wealth of knowledge. If you are somebody who does need a little help with the marketing side of your business, he's the man that has a lot of good insights into what you could do and how you can accomplish your goals with whatever you already have established. Please remember to click the link below and get a shirt. You can get a men's tee, a woman's tank, multiple colors, logos, very simple, straightforward, misfits and rejects with the emblems on all sides, $19.99 plus shipping. They're really dope and I'm proud of them. So please click the link below and go grab one. It would mean the world to me. I hope this episode got you thinking about how you can start getting the support from your loved ones, going after your dreams, whatever it may be. I think you all have it in you. As you know, I'm out here in Vietnam trying to shape my life in the way I want location dependent. I'm getting closer. You know, the last three months have been good to me. I've at least made a steady enough income that sustaining a life in these environments is becoming more viable. I have no doubt that in the coming months, it'll become more and more viable. Statistically, all the experts are saying I'm right where I should be at with the amount of courses I'm selling through surf progression techniques in my online surf course, perfect your pop-up and learn to turn. So again, that's tremendously encouraging for me. For those of you who have been following me for a long time, you know where I started, you know how far I've come, how much farther I need to go, but you can see the results I'm getting from just clicking away on the keyboard every day, coming to these retreats in Asia, joining these social groups of digital nomads, surrounding myself with a lot of like-minded people. All these aspects really help in getting me to where I want to go. So I hope that I'm leaving that trail of breadcrumbs for you. If this is a lifestyle that you want to pursue, you can just follow my lead and hopefully get there a lot quicker than me. But I think anybody who's out there going to attempt this has to know that this is not easy. This takes time, but the rewards are worth it. It's tremendously fulfilling to make your first sale online, tremendously fulfilling to be able to afford Airbnbs around the world and eat and drink and not necessarily have to penny pinch. Um, I'm still in the penny-pinching mode, but I can see it coming where it's not going to be as big of an issue if I order two beers instead of one. So thank you again for listening. I think you all are so very, very beautiful. I look forward to seeing you next episode. We have a lot of great guests coming. As you know, I'm in Asia, capturing a lot of cool content. So stay tuned. There's a lot of great stuff coming. Much love. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new. To live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.